many of our parents' generation had to physically leave their homes to buy their local or national newspaper. Today, everything has changed. A click of a button and we have access to newspapers not just in our local area, but anywhere in the world. A political blogger has been summoned to appear before the Leveson inquiry into press standards after evidence was leaked online. Ireland has had its fair share of political sleaze in recent decades, and amongst the public, there is a renewed appetite to hold politicians to account. You, however, allow racists to publish comments on your blog, well, saying, and that saying, is a disgrace. Saying, saying, you know, we, you are the sewer, they get, they get, other people are the sewer, sewage. <laughs> Back in 2004, an unidentified online blogger began poking fun at and writing about the political establishment in the UK. Using the name Guido Fawkes, his website, orderorder.com, operates under the tagline of Parliamentary Plots, Rumours and Conspiracy. The man behind this blog is Paul Staines. Okay, so Paul Staines, a.k.a. Um, Guido Fawkes, his website managed to print what uh, they say uh, is... Today, uh, Paul is widely regarded as one of the most influential political bloggers in the British Isles. He will print stories few others are willing to take a chance on. If you ever go across the sea to Ireland Then maybe at the closing of your day. Did I mention Paul is an Irish citizen? You will sit and watch the moon rise over Clatter. Uh, well, my parents live here and uh, I've got property here. We spend quite a lot of time here. We're over for Easter. It's my uh, daughter Saoirse's seventh birthday. So she's with all the cousins. And uh, it's children are baptised here. So, And we are Irish. Yeah, I mean, Saoirse, that's not really the quintessential English name, is it? <laughs> the, and my in-law's family do uh, call them the um, London Murphys because of their accent, but I spent all my summers here with my grandparents. I'm funny, I'm, I'm a West Brit here and I'm a plastic paddy in, in England. You can't win. The Irish Sea Last April, Paul flew to Ireland for a week to bypass British jurisdiction on the day he published controversial private files. I met Paul in a hotel just outside Wexford. As I waited for him, he was being interviewed from his car by the media show on BBC Radio 4. His actions that day had caused uproar. But first, political blogger and establishment scourge Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido Fawkes, has this week published a heap of information lots of people wished he hadn't. The files he published were extracts seized from a private detective during the course of an investigation called Operation Motorman, which was set up by the British government to look at how some UK media hired private detectives. Motorman's been written about in general, and some victims' names, mainly famous ones, have found their way into the public domain. But the report itself has never been published. In response to demands from some campaigners, Lord Justice Leveson is considering the matter currently. In the meantime, Guido Fawkes, a.k.a. Paul Staines, has just gone and done it. The current Information Commissioner, Chris Graham, has dis declared himself very angry and accused Staines of being irresponsible. As this story was making headlines across the world and there were calls for Paul to be brought before a UK judge, we sat overlooking the River Slaney and chatted about how an Irish passport holder had managed to rock the British establishment. I've broken stories when I'm on holiday quite a few times. It annoys my wife. Um, it's, sometimes it's safer when you have a very controversial story where you're pushing the um, boundaries with 
with the law and because we do kind of investigative stuff and we get documents that people don't want people to know about in this case we have the product of a police-led investigation into um, illegal invasions of privacy by journalists which has been around for a few years and I got hold of it last week and I held it back till I came to Ireland deliberately because uh, I'm in enough trouble with Lord Leveson Lord Justice Leveson and uh, I think I'm safer doing that kind of thing in a different country Yeah but I saw them reporting that you may well end up before Leveson uh, in, the, in the coming weeks because of it Well he has summoned me twice and I have uh, tweaked his nose once before so I wouldn't be surprised if he summons me a third time The Leveson Inquiry is a public inquiry into the culture, practices and ethics of the British press following the News International phone hacking scandal It has already led to the closure of the News of the World, the biggest daily newspaper in the UK, and caused much upheaval for Rupert Murdoch and his family. More than 800 phone hacking victims have so far been identified. Paul has been called before the Leveson inquiry on a number of occasions and asked about modern media culture and to defend why he had gone against the wishes of the inquiry and published information relating to upcoming testimony on his website. At the inquiry, Paul took the opportunity to reinforce his Irish identity before Lord Justice Leveson. And so in taking this action, you were effectively deciding um, practically to thwart what the court was trying to achieve. Uh, Yeah. And you were doing that for what reason? Because I think when uh, you're considering £50 billion of the public's money, the public has a right to know what's going on. And there was no democratic uh, reason why this should be done in secret. This was the taxpayers' money, and it was a lot of money. Yeah, I told him um, that um, you know, since 1922, my countrymen don't care what a British judge thinks. Something that I think uh, you might have overlooked is that uh, I'm a citizen of a free republic, and since 1922, I don't have to pay attention to what a British judge orders my countrymen to do. I know that went down very well over here and certainly caused some of my uh, relatives to give me a cheer. Uh, and it took a lot of intake of breath from all those lawyers, I can tell you. But it, it's a fact. I, my website is based in the United States of America, where I have the protection of the Constitution and the First Amendment. And I'm a foreign citizen, and this is my country. So I don't know how a British judge is going to tell a foreigner what he can do in his own country. While Paul grew up in the UK, he has always maintained his connections to Ireland. Paul owns a house in Wexford, near to his relations, and he visits several times a year. You know, my mum's family are, are working-class Irish from Finglas, and uh, their politics, they weren't really political at all. Um, my dad uh, kind of had a middle-class upbringing. Well, he actually was privately educated in India, and then he came to the UK and uh, had a adjustment, you know, to a life of without servants, etc., in, in the UK, just a normal middle-class existence. He was a sort of young Fabian socialist and tells me stories about knocking on doors for the Labour Party. Um, I think my mum's view of it changed. She, like a lot of the Irish who came over in the 60s, uh, she came when she was 18 to London to find work. She would probably have identified with Labour, but... Uh, they tell me that when they were applying for their first... They applied for a council house when I was born, and uh, they were turned down, and my mother never, ever thought of voting for Labour again. So she's, um, she doesn't believe in people uh, claiming they're dull, and she's always worked for it herself, and she's very antagonistic towards that kind of thing. And were your mum's family a Republican family? Were they nationalists? 
they weren't very political. Um, it's just interesting that your dad benefited from the colonial Britain, whereas your mum and yeah, your no, aunt probably... I'm, I'm the son of immigrants from two British colonies. It doesn't inform my thinking that much, but I, I know that um, I'm always amused when people think I'd, I'm a die-hard conservative supporter because that party's called the Conservative Unionist Party, and I can assure you I'm not a unionist, that's for sure. Um, my parents are just regular kind of people. They're not politically active. My dad's youthful activism is long gone. Arguably, one of Paul's acts of Irish patriotism was to put the names of the Anglo-Irish bondholders into the public domain for the first time. No one up until then could tell us who we were paying the money to. Before that, let's go back. It's 2007. And Paul Staines is still relatively unknown as the person behind Guido Fawkes, the secret political blogger. Back then, bloggers were still seen as the poor relations of mainstream media. On March 29th that year, Paul's carefully crafted private persona began to unravel on BBC's Newsnight with Jeremy Paxman. Well, Mr Fawkes joins us now from Westminster, where he's insisted on being in darkness. And we're joined here in the studio by The Guardian journalist uh, Michael White. In studio that night with Jeremy Paxman was The Guardian's assistant editor and respected political journalist Michael White. I was on television once on BBC Newsnight with Jeremy Paxman and Guido. Guido turned up in silhouette to protect his identity. I said at the time I thought we were the ones who were meant to be the hole-in-the-corner secretive operators. He looked a bit like... You remember the IRA when yeah. the spokesman used to appear in silhouette? Mr. Forsell, so we must call you, I gather. Uh, why do you insist on this preposterous disguise? Well, so I can go undercover. I can remember a year ago having a discussion with a... Senior yeah, that's quite uh, embarrassing. I was sort of in the shadows. Um, I tried to be anonymous because I didn't want all my previous baggage to go along, and I didn't want to embarrass my wife all the time. And now my children. I, sooner or later, it's going to occur to them to Google Daddy's name, and they're only seven and five. But um, they're going to find out because you work in politics. There's a lot of people who you know are very aggressive, and it's unpleasant. And I didn't want to embarrass my wife. She's a, a lawyer and an investment bank, and Sure enough, every day an embarrasser in another way. In a way, the Newsnight Exchange perfectly encapsulated the meeting of both old and new journalism and how initially both were slightly uncomfortable in each other's presence. If I bump into Michael next week and a puppy won't know who I am then. Well, I know I saw you at a, a lunch once where everybody else was in a tie, you were wearing a, a, a rugby shirt, and somebody said, that's Paul Staines, he's Guido Fawkes. And I said, <laughs> I said, get away, is it? Uh, he looked a bit of a prat. I know you're not a prat, but you looked a bit of a prat on this occasion. So next time I see you, unless you've really disguised yourself with a blonde wig, I will recognise you. Hi. Hi, Michael. Uh, you're fantastic, but, you know, look how you reacted over John's week. Bit of a failure, okay, your that... conspiracy theory there, wasn't well, well, it? Well, how come it was a showbiz reporter who exposed him for shagging his secretary, not you? You're his friend. You're off having... Uh, I'm not... Uh, I'm going not... to his birthday, 68th birthday party. Saying how I, I watched that Newsnight interview again. I mean, it was an extraordinary interview, really. Kind of absurd in one way, the fact that he was behind the screen. And obviously you knew who he was. It's harmless sort of teenage stuff, really. And in a way, that's... Maybe this is my age showing. That's what I feel about uh, Guido. It's a bit like this or the Beano or, you know, farting in the back of the class. <laughs> Despite a somewhat dismissive attitude from some sections of the media towards Paul, his website, Order Order, provides a profitable six-figure income 
and he also runs a business selling advertising space online. His website attracted over 2 million page views in the last month alone. Another half million views came via other sources and he has close to 80,000 followers on Twitter. Paul also sells stories to traditional media outlets for significant fees. He does all right. Back on the banks of the Slaney, Paul takes me through his views on the Irish media and political landscape, informed by his unique position as both a part of and apart from traditional media culture. I think the problem with the Irish media um, is it's got too few owners and it's too small. I mean, the market is uh, about the same size as Manchester. And I'm surprised at how many papers there are. You know, every county has a paper, which is a good thing. My experience with the Irish media is I got the Anglo-Irish bondholders um, list just after Lenin had told the Doyle that it was impossible to tell you who you were paying the money to because of just market commercial sensitivities and practically impossible. So I think it was two days later I published it. Now, I, I, I can see journalists being sceptical, but it was clearly, you know, not made up. But the Irish press didn't run with it at all. And, in fact, some of the Irish journalists said, oh, well, it looks bogus, and it turned out subsequently to be completely on the money. And it's kind of like... They didn't want to have some blogger overseas show them that could be done. And I think there was a bit of a personal enmity there. And there is that, I don't like to use the terms, but old media versus new media uh, suspicion, isn't there? I can't... There is. And they always wonder how we do it and how we pay for it, etc. And I have to point to them. All the adverts around the, around the blog probably explain something. Um, and, you know, they're in a terminal decline. You know, not, not just all around the world. You know, the newspaper industry is dying. And uh, everything's moving online, and the advertising spend's moving online. Jobs are going. It's kind of tough for newspaper people when they see these uh, pesky bloggers around the place. But that's the future. Yeah, you honestly think that print or that print media is... Uh, that there isn't a future? You go, you go on a, a bus or on, a, on the... Um, rapid transit and look around at all the commuters no one's reading papers they're all reading their phones their uh, blackberries kindles ipads it's increasingly the way and why not it's it's faster it's better it's more up to date and people are sort of kind of a newspaper sometimes the news is 36 hours old that's no good anymore and people just aren't interested. But yet, if you had a big story and if you were to sell it, you would go to print media, would you, as opposed to going to a broadcast outlet? Yeah, because um, broadcasters don't pay. Uh, the usual place that we do these stories, the sort of big explosive stories, is in the Sunday papers. And um, you know, when we did Smeargate, we actually didn't get paid, but we wanted the maximum impact, so we took that to the News of the World and the Sunday Times in London, uh, both... Um, the two biggest selling tabloid and broadsheet because we wanted to maximise the impact and it's still the case that a Sunday newspaper story of that kind will get the maximum impact. And you didn't get paid for that? Unfortunately not. Uh, the reason I didn't is my wife is a lawyer and she was very concerned that we basically, if people don't know, Smeargate was a case of the Prime Minister at that time, Gordon Brown's uh, press advisor, concocting smears to be used against um, Conservative politicians. And I got hold of the email where he sequenced the ideas for these smears, which is pretty bad. I mean, he's a civil servant. Um, he resigned within 
24 hours. Uh, but because of the nature of how we got the emails, uh, the whistleblower protections that you have under the law in, in the UK would all fall away if you did it for profit. So to my annoyance, I'll admit, I couldn't sell that story. And uh, so it became a white knight operation we did for the better good, greater good. Yeah, I mean, and as well, obviously, it, it increased your profile and drove more traffic to your site and would have helped with advertisers on your site, I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, uh, we were not a charity. I mean, I had to make money and do good at the same time. Um, and if you look back over those stories, Paul, the ones that you've that, that you've broke, which are the ones you think uh, that you're most proud of, if that's if that's the right way to describe it? I think Smeargate was definitely the, the, the best one. It uh, destroyed... Um, somebody who was a pretty unpleasant character you know it took him out of public life and even the prime minister gordon brown admitted that he said there was no place in public life for, for that kind of operation it also it, this was um in 2009 the year before the general election it knocked five percentage points off uh, labor that week uh, it's incredible uh, the, the the impact it had it was it, it was it was it was a front page story for 11 days um and the other aspect of it, there was a feeling that the lobby journalists, the, the Westminster specialists, knew what he was like and did nothing. And then after he went, uh, Damien McBride, there were all these stories in the press saying what a terrible man he was and how vicious he was. Well, they didn't write it before I knocked him out. And why do you think that? Because it's a cosy club. Uh, and it's the same in Ireland, by the way. You know, the journalists drink with the politicians and they build up a personal rapport and if you've had lunch with somebody it's very hard to stab them the next day so it's that normal human element but all trade press becomes captive and a client of the people they cover it's just natural and particularly for broadcasters if you don't get access to the principal you don't have an interview so if you go for them too hard they won't speak to you and then you have very boring television or very boring radio Whereas traditionally tabloid and broadsheet journalism were strictly defined in terms of how far they would or wouldn't pry into someone's private life, online there's a lot more freedom to report in different styles. Some of Paul's critics would argue that his treatment of British Foreign Secretary William Hague's private life overstepped a mark between fair comment and groundless innuendo. In 2010, Paul had published The Sleeping Arrangements of Foreign Secretary Hague and his male assistant Chris Myers, which forced the minister to release intimate details of his married life in an effort to quell internet rumours. ...personal statement in response to press and internet speculation over the last ten days. Earlier this year, a Sunday newspaper began questioning whether my marriage to Fionn was in trouble, and last week another media outlet asked whether there was a statement about our supposed separation. This seemed to be linked to equally untrue speculation surrounding the appointment of Christopher Myers as a special adviser. Paul, though, remains unrepentant for his actions and points out that mainstream media shied away from the story. Rumours have dogged William Hague for uh, decades and um, we became aware, actually, we got a tip from a journalist who had it spiked by their editor that um, he'd shared a room... So spiked us when they, they would have filed a copy and uh, it subsequently wasn't published. That's right. So the, the editor said, no, we're not running that story. That William Haig had shared a room with his young, good-looking male advisor. 
So eyebrows yeah, raised. On this speculation seems to stem from the fact that whilst campaigning before the election, we occasionally shared twin hotel rooms. Neither of us would have done so if we thought that in any way it meant or implied something else. In hindsight, I should have given greater consideration to what might have been made of that. But this is in itself no justification for allegations of this kind which are untrue and deeply distressing to me, to Fionn and to Christopher. This was during the election. Now, when he became Foreign Secretary, that uh, young man was given a job as his special advisor. And previously, all he'd had to his qualifications was driving around William Hague during the general election. He went to a second-rate university, got a second-rate degree, had no qualification to be what is a top top position, the cream of academia getting the fast track and go work in the foreign office. It's the, it's the most prized job going. What was this guy's qualification? So we asked the question, what was his qualification for the job? You know, quite legitimately, I thought that was a legitimate question. And then, in traditional tabloid style, we mentioned and he shared a bedroom with him at such a hotel. On yeah, such he a goes point. on to say that Christopher Myers has demonstrated commitment and political talent over the last 18 months. He's easily qualified for the job he holds. Any suggestion that his appointment was due to an improper relationship between us is utterly false, as is any suggestion that I have ever been involved in a relationship with any man. The, as I referred to earlier, in the Leveson inquiry, we said about a photo that we sold to the News of the World for £20,000 that they didn't publish. It was a photo of that... Uh, young man in a gay bar. Amazing, because they paid... I mean, a newspaper doesn't pay £20,000 sterling for a photograph for it just to lay on somebody's desk and never never, never reach... get get into the paper. No, it doesn't, generally. And uh, you can draw your own conclusions from that. Well, that's the great thing, Richie, because your face... I mean, it is better known now, but yeah. still wouldn't be as well known as, you know, somebody who's on Sky News every week. No, I mean, I've had that thing where people come up to you in, in the, in the uh, supermarket, which is a bit odd... Um, given I'm not the most photogenic of characters, but, you know, uh, my kids love seeing me on TV, you know, and they they uh, think of the Guido Fawkes character as like a Disney character, the, the logo. You know, I wouldn't say... I'm famous for Westminster in that circle, but I wouldn't say I'm a household name. To get a sense of how some political and media insiders in the UK regard Paul... I went with him to a political gathering in Westminster in early summer. I was standing outside the heart of the British political establishment in Westminster, adjacent to the Houses of Parliament, and I wanted to see firsthand how Paul interacted with both media and politicians. Had the perennial outsider now become an established insider? Do you want to just tell us who's here, Paul? Yeah, sure. Um, Donata's here, who is uh, Telegraph's political comment. I'm an assistant common editor. Not mentioned online. Giles is BBC's uh, uh, boy about town in politics. Hello there. You're very surprised that I'm actually talking to Guido. <laughs> and uh, Harry works for me. Top of the morning to you. And a few other people. He works for uh, um, Spectator and uh, the Daily Star. Um, and assorted people, lobbyists, uh, UKIP guy. Alex Dean down there is a lobbyist who um, used to work for Cameron. Typical Westminster scene. It's bubble-tastic. <laughs> it's sunny as well. We've come out, of, uh, come out of our dark corners and into the light. And the, uh, the dude that's on tonight? It's the Taxpayers' Alliance uh, Summer Party. Uh, Taxpayers' Alliance is probably the biggest centre-right pressure group. And you work for the BBC, Charles? Yeah. Yeah. 
my job to mix with everybody. I think the idea that uh, we wouldn't mix with, you know, we will talk to MPs and we'll talk to ministers and things like that. Of course we talk to bloggers as well. It would be idiotic these days not to. And sometimes, sometimes I say, looking very hard at Harry, they are very quick with the information, quicker than others. Obviously, we wouldn't necessarily go immediately to air with that, but we would certainly start <laughs> checking. In some ways, he's carved out... He's reset the bar about where and what you can talk about. Do you agree with that, Paul? Do you mean in terms of private lives? No, no, I didn't mean private lives. Just to mean about where people start talking about policy areas. If it's already out there because he's done it, then it's being discussed anyway. Yeah, I think what we did... In fact, Michael White in The Guardian said this years ago. said they'd taken all the cocktail conversation and put it online. You know, so all the stuff that was talked about but didn't appear in the papers is now in the papers. It's a very, very good way of putting it. Inside the Taxpayers' Alliance party... I asked Paul if he could identify any MP who had been given a rough time by his blog. I wondered, did they hold any grudges? One of those we met was David Davies, a man who was beaten to the leadership of the Conservative Party by current British Prime Minister David Cameron. David, Paul Sainz from Guido. Um, this is, this is a RTE, Brian from RTE. Uh-huh. And he's looking, for people, he's looking for people I've done over over the last few years on the Guido blog. And I wondered if you ever felt you got a not a fair balance. Oh, absolutely, all the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned a few of your staffing problems, uh, and during the leadership campaign we characterised you as Basher Davis. Do you remember that? Yeah, but, you know, look, I'm a believer in civil liberties. I'm a believer in freedom of speech. If you can't take the bruises, you shouldn't be in the game. He's a good loser. What the that's, he, that's the rudest thing he's ever said about me. <laughs> Politicians who complain about journalists are like sailors who complain about the weather. You know, and, you know, it's exactly right. But, uh, yeah. And do you think in terms of Paul and the type of work that he does that it's changed fundamentally the media? Is what? That it's changed the media culture. Of course it has. Of course it has. And um, uh, it's made it faster. It's made it more aggressive. I mean, there have been downsides. But the it's one of those downsides, the invasion of privacy, of you, in terms of like you well, entitlement. Well, I mean, one of the problems with the speed is you know you can't necessarily uh, sort it out. You know, a journalist comes to you and says we've got this, and you say no, it's not true. You know, well, you don't get that pleasure. You know, it just happens. But you know, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. You know, that, 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 you know in my business, in my world, that happens. You know. I, bear in mind, I got the privilege to stand up over there in the House of Commons and say what the hell I like about anybody, nobody can sue me. You know, now hopefully I exercise it responsibly. But sometimes I say things about companies in particular which must get them very cross. If I'd been said it outside, they'd sue me. So that's it. That's it. But we live in a tabloid age. That's not, that's not the problem with the internet. That started earlier than that, you know. Um, you know, 50 years, well, not even that. Longer than 50 years ago, there was a sort of or that people didn't report certain things. Now they report everything. Yeah. I'm John Craig, Chief Political Correspondent of Sky News. Paul's blog is different from all the others. He'd probably say it was unique. It's more irreverent, it's more uh, saucy, it uh, takes the mickey out of people in a way that other blogs don't. It's more risky, of course. Uh, how he doesn't get sued every day, I don't know. He's not afraid to uh, give politicians a kicking uh, when others uh, won't. Another person we bumped into was Paul Goodman, who previously served as MP for Wickham for nine years. Oh, we have a trip for you. Did you have dealings with this fellow when you were an MP? 
I, I deny everything. Everything. I, I can't state that emphatically enough. I'm not even sure I know who this is. You're still buying him a drink, so he can't have done you over that much, did he? <laughs> no, he, no, no, indeed, he never has. Bless it, yet. Because you, yeah. you were so true and honest and straight an MP. And that's why you lost your seat, wasn't it? <laughs> Listen to him go. Do you want a drink? I'm okay, you're, you're thanks. Welcome. I'm gonna, I'll, be, I'll be back in a sec. I'm going to get one and then come in. While some bloggers and online journalists have emerged in Ireland, including politics.ie and Gavin Sheridan's The Story, it's fair to say none have had the kind of impact or ingrained themselves among the political elite here the way the Guido Fox blog has in the UK. Are you surprised that there hasn't been a figure like you that's emerged in Ireland? It's a very... It's, I think if... How are they going to support themselves? I mean, we have... For the first couple of years, we didn't make any money. And it's only since about 2008 that the thing has actually paid its way. So you've got to have the resources to begin with to start up a new publication... It's a, it's a small economy and a small market. Uh, everybody knows everybody. That means that you've got kind of relationships. I think it's very hard to do it over here. A lot of people who are interested in politics are very pro and optimistic about what politics can achieve. I'm very pessimistic about what politics can achieve. So you're looking for a character who's got money, uh, motivation and uh, ability, and that's quite tough. And how are you going to finance it all? So unless you've got a, a, a patron, you know some kind of rich backer, you're not going to be able to do it. But, but you didn't have that patron in the early days, no. did you? No. No. Um, basically, uh, did it off my own bat, and then it became more and more full-time. I sort of set up um, an advertising company to sell ads for my blog and uh, all the other political blogs. And um, So you have a company now that... Yeah, that an Irish that. company. It's an Irish company. Uh, we like the uh, corporate taxation rates here. Uh, I'm managing director of the Irish company. Uh, we sell for about 40 websites involved in politics and news, and uh, that's how we finance the whole operation. So, no, there's no, um, there's no Lord Evil offshore backing us, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> the digital age may have fundamentally changed the way news is published, but online editors still editorialise. Some might argue that they are a lot freer in their decision-making. But the very nature of the human psyche means choices are always made. And are there, are there stories and information that you get, Paul, that, that you hold and you sit on and you think, hang on now, you know, that you have serious doubts about it? You, maybe not about the impact it'll have on someone's personal life, but, uh, but for other reasons that, that you hang on to stories. We, we get a lot of uh, stories about um, to young people you know, in politics. Everyone does stupid things when they're young and... I don't really want to uh, ruin somebody who's got a picture on Facebook they regret and they're 19 years old. I don't really want to run that kind of story and I don't want to ruin their life. So we, we don't tend to run those kind of stories, which we could, and it would be fun but probably isn't very healthy. And I also think, you know, I've got young daughters, I don't want them getting into. But let's forgive and forget in the age. Uh, if there's a big story, we probably are going to run with it no matter what. And uh, I wouldn't if I felt I was holding back or pulling my punches on something. It's awkward when you have a relationship or you know them or, you know, there are some MPs I, I know socially. It's very awkward, but it's never stopped us from doing them over. Speculation concerning tighter privacy laws in Ireland remains, 
most recently with the Irish body politic calling for greater restrictions on what media can say and who can say it. Paul, on the other hand, believes privacy is not for everyone. All the financial shenanigans that have gone on with Irish politicians, it would be harder to uncover, and it was very difficult to uncover what's been uncovered so far. It would be even harder if you had privacy laws. You know, the worst thing that could happen to Ireland is we get those kind of things. The rich and the powerful get away with enough as it is, and in some ways the only restraint that we have on them is their fear of exposure. If they knew they couldn't be exposed for misbehaving, they'd be worse. When you are here now for the next for the next week on holidays and you're down the local pub... I might po- be here a lot longer if Lord Everson has his way. You know, um, you know, it, it is the intention that the children will be educated here when they're older. So, you know, we're coming home for good. You think you will move back to Ireland, yeah? Yeah, I, I don't want my kids growing up in, in the UK. Why not? Because um, we're Irish and... Uh, Everyone wants to go home in the end, and uh, I think the quality of life, despite all the troubles you have now, and the state of the property market probably means that we'll come back and buy somewhere bigger. Um, it's a great country, you know, great people, beautiful. This country has everything going for it, apart from the debts. God, I'd say there's a lot of Irish politicians who listen to this now, and they will be bristling at the thought of you uh, on the way back here. I'd love to, but I think I'll be semi-retired so they can rest easy. After his break in Ireland, Paul returned to the UK, where he continues to be a thorn in the side of the political establishment and in the process helped shape the way politics and media interact. (laughs) 